Welcome to the Therapeutic Food Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Mitchell. I'm an integrative nutrition health coach, therapeutic diet expert, and founder of The Road to Living Whole. There are many different diets out there. It's hard to know which one is right for you with your chronic illness and autoimmune disease. In this podcast, I'm going to share with you the foundational pieces every single therapeutic diet out there shares, and also how to use the best one for your particular diagnosis. If you've been looking for a meal planning partner, help navigating the complicated healthcare system, and want to feel better quickly, I'm your girl. Grab your kombucha and notebook. Let's dive in. Today, Spencer Feldman is joining me again, and this time we're going to talk about the microbiome. He first joined me back in episode 64, where he shared about effective strategies to detox from complex pathogens and just all kinds of really good stuff. So if you haven't listened to that after this is over, go back and listen to that one. I am thrilled that he's back to take us deeper into recovering our health effectively. Spencer, welcome back. Thanks for having me again, Marian. I'm so excited for you to be here. Like I said, you just have so much information and I'm really excited to dive into the microbiome with you. But for those of for those who are maybe new to the podcast and this is like their first time listening or they just kind of listen here and there, can you just introduce yourself to us and let people know who you are? Sure. So my name is Spencer Feldman. Um, I wanted to be an emergency room physician in college. I got poisoned by a vaccine. Uh, my hands shook so much I couldn't hold... I couldn't use a soup spoon anymore. I obviously couldn't use a scalpel. So um, realizing I couldn't play a role in the medical world in that realm, which is probably a good thing, um, I ended up going into the chronic side of things, like how people get sick. And uh, what I found was that there's a lot of, how do I say this in a, in a, in a way that doesn't lay blame? Um, the mo- the medical model is designed with, with two blind spots. One is that um, we use uh, acute management tools for chronic disease and they don't work, right? I mean, in a car crash or a gunshot wound, you want to be in an ER, right? You want um, IVs running and and and, and uh, heroic efforts being made. Um, but that fails in the chronic disease model. And so the modern medicine doesn't really have a chronic disease model. Uh, alternative medicine does. And the other thing is the pharmaceutical houses are financially driven to uh, their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders is to generate a profit, not to make people healthy. Uh, now, if they can make people healthy, great, with the exception of Pfizer that has now come out uh, on, on Veritas that they're actively talking about, if they haven't already, manipulating and evolving the uh, COVID so that they can have vaccines for uh, diseases they create, which you can go and validate. That's another world. Um, but the yes. problem with the um, the problem with the pharmaceutical industry is that the drugs that are the doctors are being trained on, right, which are being offered as the ways to handle chronic disease. Um, first off, a large number of people aren't going to get helped because if you're in a small group of people um, with a with a disease that either there's not enough people or they don't know what to do, then it's ignored. So there's a lot of people that fall in the cracks. Uh, and the other is. Um, the model isn't trying to figure out why the problem happened. It's more symptom oriented, which is covering up the, your body's uncomfortable symptomatic response to the primary imbalance, which, you know, is a fly now pay later plan. Right. Uh, so what I've been trying to do for the last 25 years is fill the gaps by uh, providing protocols and 
um, designing um, formulating products that would help people who've fallen in the cracks, uh, you know, kind of gotten lost their health either to a small degree or a large degree, and really aren't getting um, the kind of help that they want from the uh, current medical model. Awesome. I absolutely love your story. And I feel like that's just all of us, right? Like we have these chronic issues and we're just tired of taking medication. We want to actually get better and feel better and fix it so we can live our life. And a big part of that is our gut. It's our microbiome. So let's talk about that. What is it? How do we get it? You know, I, I want to dedicate um, the vast majority of our time together to that topic, but I want to bring something up in terms of current events. As many of your listeners are probably aware, a train was derailed or there was sabotage uh, in the town of Palestine, Ohio, carrying five loads of uh, vital chloride. Um, and rather than let it seep into the groundwater, they decided to burn it. Um, maybe that was the best of two terrible options if they couldn't contain or vacuum it up. Um, problem, you know, because it would have destroyed the the water downstream for a large portion of the U.S. farmland. Uh, so now what we have is a, um, a lot of people being exposed to vinyl chloride and then dioxins, which are among the most toxic things, and that's what was in Agent Orange. Uh, the water is going, the toxic water is going west, south, and uh, southwest, and the toxic air is going northeast. So one way or the other, you know, anyone within a thousand miles is going to be getting some of this in their system at some point in time. Uh, and, uh, so when you look up vinyl chloride, uh, the way in which it's commonly thought to be the way in which the metabolites are formed and the way to which it's removed from the body naturally, uh, not that there might be some unnatural, better way to do it, but the way the body does it is with conjugation of glutathione using the P450 cytochrome P450 enzymes, which I'm sure we talked about in our last podcast. Did, yeah. So if you or someone, you know, has been exposed to this, um, you know, obviously, uh, we make um, glutathione and coffee suppositories, but if you don't have access to that, um, I would go and get some uh, powdered glutathione and some organic coffee, and I would make coffee glutathione enemas, and I would also inhale glutathione with a nebulizer. So that's just something that I think um, it's good to have a, that knowledge of how to handle. Before we move on, let's talk about glutathione a little bit and the role that it's going to play. Because I feel like people might hear that and be like, okay, that sounds good. And then they're going to look at a, maybe a price of a high quality one and go, mm. so I think, uh, you know, from a health coach perspective, I really love for people to understand why glutathione is so important. So can we maybe dive into that just a little bit before we move on to the topic of the day? Sure. Glutathione is made of three amino acids. The body makes it. Uh, you can't, um, and it's the main detoxifier for um, fat-soluble toxins in the body. Uh, there are others, but that's the one that has the, um, that, that has the, maybe albumin too, um, but you can't really get that. Um, that's the one that's going to have the, the, the widest effect across the most number of toxins. Uh, and Unfortunately, you can't just eat it because because it's made of three uh, amino acids. Uh, they're going to get broken down in the digestive tract. So it's typically done by IV, but you can inhale it as a through a nebulizer if you mix it with water, and you can also take it rectally. Uh, glutathione will bind to toxins like vinyl chloride, but there's a, a step ahead of time that has to happen. Uh, there's a, an enzyme made by the liver. Uh, by the cytochrome P450 family of enzymes. Um, there's an enzyme there that will uh, manipulate the toxin, in this case, monochloride, changing it, uh, adding an oxygen uh, to it so that now the glutathione has a place to grab onto. 
So the, the liver kind of does it in a two-step. It, it puts a little handhold on the toxin and then the glutathione grabs onto it, it makes it water soluble and you can urinate it out. Uh, and so if you just give someone glutathione, but you don't have the cytochrome P450 enzyme, you actually make them worse because now the enzyme is rendered more soluble and it moves around and causes more damage. And if you just give someone a coffee enema, but they don't have a lot of glutathione, which in today's world, very few people have a surplus of that, uh, then again, it's not gonna happen. You really need to do both of these at the same time. We have a product called Xenoplex, um, but again, um, you can do this yourself and I support you in anyone who's exposed to this going and getting some glutathione powder and coffee, freeze-dried coffee extract, grind the extract up, make make some hot coffee with the glutathione and, you know, take it rectally. But with the glutathione, that's the key. And then, um, you know, other things people can do, air purifiers, water purifiers, get shower head purifiers so you're not showering in it. Um, you know, this is, oh, I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't even do that. If you're in a, you have to get out. Well, yes. But I mean, like the thing is, uh, the thing I'm thinking of is it's going to travel. Like it's not like, I mean, we're in Arizona, we're in the West, West coast. It's going to travel. And so it's like the quality of the water in general for all toxins, you know, if you're close by, you do need to get out. The fact that they're telling people to go back is beyond frustrating when the evidence is solid that it's not a safe place to that live. Town, that town should be permanently evacuated like Chernobyl. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. and the fact that they're not is beyond frustrating. Um, like I remember when it happened and all the research that was pouring out and nobody even knew about it for like two weeks. It was beyond frustrating. So I will put a link to, uh, the Xenoplex in the show notes for everybody. If that's something you guys want to do and yeah. Yeah. So, um, that, you know, our prayers go out to the people uh, affected by that. And yes, by all means, if you find yourself that you're going to have to, um, water filter and air filter and, and keep your glutathione levels up. Uh, on a lighter note, so let's talk about the microbiome. Uh, let's talk about uh, what it is, what it does for you, uh, how you get it, how we lose it, how we regain it, and how we maintain it. Awesome. So the microbiome is a mix of thousands of different species of bacteria, fungi, and viruses. Not all viruses are bad. There are things called bacteriophages that are viruses that eat bad bacteria or eat bacteria. So there, we have a viral microbiome. Not all fungi are bad. There's a Saccharomyces boulardii, which is um, aggressive towards other pathogenic fungi. So it's a, it's a whole garden in there. Just like if you pull up soil out of a garden, there's all sorts of fun things in there if you pull a microscope on it. So how are we, how are we maintaining it? Um, a lot of people think the microbiome is digestion. That is only a fraction of what it does. Um, the microbiome is responsible for regulating basically every system in our body. And it does this by creating and managing the levels of a staggering 500,000 different types of metabolites that make up 40% of the compounds in your blood. So almost half of your blood compounds are coming out of your microbiome, right? So obviously very important. Compared to the immune system, the microbiome has more immune cells than blood and bone marrow combined. Compared to our endocrine system, our hormones, the microbiome has more endocrine cells than all the endocrine cells of the body combined. In terms of information processing, the microbiome is three times heavier than the brain, right? In terms of genetic material, a genetic database for us to tap into, the microbiome has a thousand times more genetic material than the DNA. So it's a lot of people say, oh, your, your gut's your second brain. I'm like, no, no, your gut's your first brain. It was here first, right? 
And it did everything. It did the thinking, it did the digesting, it did the immunity, it did all of it. Imagine a, a, a prehistoric worm, right? And it's just a gut moving through the ocean or the slime or the mud or wherever it is. And that gut has to do everything. And then eventually, if you believe in evolution, then different things kind of started to specialize. So a part of the gut specialized and became the brain and handed, handled information processing and sensory data and another and the nervous system. Another part specialized in hormones and became the glands. Another part specialized, uh, you know, in um, in blood flow and became, you know, became the heart. So all these other organs we have are specialized. The original was the microbiome and is it can do an enormous amount for us so you know let's say i asked you to to draw a tree ask and you know most people are they're gonna put a line on the ground and draw a trunk and then branches and then leaves but that's only half the tree the other half is under the ground it's the roots and the bacteria and the fungi and the microbiome that live on them and living symbiotically and we don't draw that because we don't see it well the microbiome are the roots of our metabolic tree and if they're not healthy then everything's going to go wrong I love that imagery so much. Uh, that's going to be filed away. I haven't thought of mm -hmm. it that way. <laughs> um, I love that. Yeah, no, it's absolutely vital. And that's a foundation of the alternative health world is we really focus on the gut. And I don't feel like people really understand why. And I love that beautiful description of it. So now that we know what it is, let's dive into how how do we lose it? you know, I mean, you know, basically, sure. yeah, let's talk about that. How do we lose? Well, it? let's first say before how we lose, let's talk about how we got oh, it. Oh yeah. 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 There we go. Okay. So, <laughs> so a billion years when these first worms appeared, right? Their primitive guts, they were eating bacteria and fungi and viruses. And, and some of these microorganisms killed the worms. That's a predatory relationship. Um, poor, uh, some of them made the worms sicker. That's a, a parasitic relationship. Um, some of them didn't help or hurt, you know, that's commensal. Um, but occasionally some of them figured out how to help the worm and themselves at the same time. And those worms had an advantage over all the other worms. They were healthier. And so they re replicated more and they replicated their microbiome more with the, the bacteria or fungi or viruses that were helping them. Now you fast forward that over trillions of worms over a billion years, and eventually you end up with a very fine tuned symbiotic microbiome in the gut of the worm that is really helping the worm out. And that also uh, includes us. We evolved the symbiotic relationship with the microbiome. Um, now, originally, you know, it might have just been there to help keep somebody who might have uh, eaten up some meat with some parasites or maybe some carrion from a you know from a from an older kill from dying of food poisoning. But over time, like it evolved with us, and it made us stronger and gave us more endurance, made us smarter, gave us the ability to fight infections better, heal faster, age slower. In other words, Marion, the microbiome is the most powerful ally and the most valuable upgrade we're ever going to have. Um, you know, and for all the benefits that it gives us, and we're only aware of a few of them at this point, all it asks is to for the leftovers of the food that we can't digest. Um, and let me explain that just, and we'll get back to it. Uh, you know, when we eat food, um, there, you know, if the large carbohydrates we can break down, the simple sugars we can break down, the comp the proteins we can break down, there's a so there's a, a class of sugars called oligosaccharides. We can't break them down, and that's what they eat. So it's at no cost to us. They just want the leftovers, 
but that means the food has to have those in them and they don't anymore. And then I'm going to talk about why and what we can do. So, but before we get there, let's talk about the, the, um, how we got the microbiome. So now we know how we got it. It was passed on mother to child. Um, and I want to talk about four initiations the microbiome gives us, right? Okay. Um, so rites of passage, you might say. So the first happens inside the womb. And this is when the metabolite of the mother's microbiome is passed through the placenta into the baby and it manages and guides and controls the architecture of the developing fetal brain. So basically the microbiome of the mother is playing a pivotal role in the personality and intelligence of the fetus, which is why it's really important for the mother to have a good microbiome because she not only is going to pass a microbiome on, but it's going to determine the intelligence and the personality to a degree of the child based on how that child's brain is formed in response to the metabolites being passed through the placenta. That's, okay. That's crazy. It just makes me think about like, I think in our modern culture where when you get pregnant, you just kind of let everything go and like your health goes down the toilet, but that's when it's like the most vital. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the second initiation happens when the baby's born, first few hours, days. And this is when immunoglobulin A in breast milk, specifically in colostrum, comes out of the, the first um, milk release from the mother. And this is what teaches the baby's newly created uh, immune system what not to fight. It's teaching it what is self, right? And immunoglobulin A says, hey, don't fight this. So the first step to the is now, so the microbiome is is now guiding the development of the baby's immune system. Like, hey, you know what? Those are your joints. Don't fight that. <laughs> you don't want arthritis when you get older. Hey, this is your pancreas. Don't fight that. We don't need, we don't need diabetes. And like, hey, don't fight me. I'm your microbiome. I'm your best friend. <laughs> Remember, I was the one who was helping building your brain for the last nine months. Okay. So then the third initiation comes, and this is the continuation of what was happening inside the womb. So the microbiome is guiding the, the brain development in the womb. It also guides the brain development of the baby for the first few years. Uh, and what happens is, you know, if you watch um, uh, a gazelle born in, in the African, uh, on the continent of Africa, and you see it drops down and then it's walking with the herd, right? Because if it doesn't, it's going to get eaten. So most animals are fully myelinated, meaning that the, the nerves are completely uh, insulated and their system is good to go from breath one, and they have to be. Um, humans, we are not fully myelinated. We're, we're like half-baked until we're about two years old. Our brains aren't completely, I mean, you can almost say we have MS until we are two, right? The nerves haven't completely myelinated. So what happens is the third initiation is in the microbiome guides the development and of the myelination of the nerves, but also it continues to stimulate the growth in the prefrontal cortex. And this is responsible for complex cognitive behavior, personality expression, decision-making, social behavior, and the hippocampus, which is memory. So again, the microbiome of the baby from the mother include, is now continuing to, to give it the baby its intelligence. And then a fourth initiation is, okay, this is the uh, the second half of teaching the immune system. It taught the immune system what was self and not to attack. Now it's teaching the immune system what is other and what it should attack. Hey, that's a bad bug. Go, you know, join me and together we'll go kick its butt. You know, hey, that fungus doesn't need to be in there. Hell, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm attacking it and, you know, join, right? Because the immune system real and the, uh, really needs the microbiome to do to, to, to do to work properly. And we'll get into that in a bit, in a bit too. So now the question then comes, well, 
wonderful, uh, but so what's the problem? And the problem is we lose our microbiome. And there's four dangers our microbiome faces in the modern world. The first is um, if a child isn't breastfed. Now there's more, you know, back when, um, back in the 1960s, 50s and 60s, uh, women were told, you don't want to give your child breast milk. That's old fashioned and you're not a milk cow. Use the latest and greatest new product from our industry. It's full of great things like white sugar and soy protein and cheap fat. And it'll do great, much better than your body could possibly. Oh, all right. So that was that was absurd. So breast milk, right? Um, not only does it give the immunoglobulin A, which coordinates the immune system uh, of in term uh, for the infant, it has over two hundred different prebiotics. That's what feeds bacteria, and six hundred different probiotics, which we believe actually comes from the mother's gut through the lymphatic system out the breasts into the baby. And it's capable of being changed in content day by day, depending on the needs of the infant. So somehow the baby, probably through pheromones, is connecting with the mother or the mother's immune system, which is talking, pheromone system, which is talking to the mother's body, which is then coordinating with the microbiome to then help create and deliver just the right types of bacteria and prebiotics to the baby. We couldn't come close even today to replicating that. It's really incredible to think about like just how amazing this whole relationship is and how it was designed to protect. Like I remember I nursed both of my kids and it was always like, like when I had my second one, I was like, oh my gosh, my oldest one's in school. We're going to bring all these germs home. And all I did was hug it. My son, first thing, like I'd pick him up from school and I'd hug him. So I would get all those germs so that my body would be able to help protect his sister. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Well done. Second danger is that modern diets don't contain the elements the microbiome needs to eat, right? We talked about those prebiotics, those oligosaccharides, that they're in breast milk. But once someone is weaned, they've got to get those prebiotics from their diet. And the oligosaccharides, these sugars that are in food that we can't digest, the microbiome can, they're found in primitive diets, but they're rarely found in the variety or the quantities that the, mo that the microbiome needs in modern diets. So for most of us, we don't get anywhere near enough oligosaccharides to feed our microbiome. It's just barely hanging on by its fingernails for most people. It's okay, you can recover it. It's just, but you know, it's it's not gonna happen on its own um, with the modern lifestyle. Uh, the third danger is chronic exposure to things like glyphosates and artificial sugars and pharmaceuticals and chlorinated waters. They'll wreck the microbiome. And then finally, antibiotics especially fluoroquinolones like Cipro, which can wipe out 50% of the species of the microbiome in a matter of days. That's even worse than some, um, you know, certain types of dysentery in terms of what it does to the microbiome. Uh, I mean, even low levels of antibiotics on factory farmed meat has an effect. So what happens to the microbiome as a response to these insults, right? Um, roughly speaking, there's two adaptive responses of the microbiome to these stresses. One is called the dormancy and the other is phenotype drift. And I'll explain them both. Thank you. Dormancy. <laughs> sure. Dormancy is when um, something hibernates. So the bacterial cells uh, in, the, in the microbiome slow their metabolic activity because they're not eating. <laughs> there's not enough food for them. So they kind of go dormant like a bear in winter. And they just kind of wait around either for food to appear or for the toxins to go away. Because if a toxin comes by, it can only really affect the microbiome if it's active in eating. So when the microbiome senses toxins, it'll just go dormant, kind of goes to sleep. And if the toxin is a poison, it can't really affect it. If it's an oxidant, 
meaning it's actually ripping apart the wall of the bacteria, then it'll kill it. But if it's something that is metabolically destroying it and it's not eating, that if it passes through, it can come back, which is why you can recover the microbiome for a lot of people if you can feed it properly, because it might've just gone to sleep on you as an emergency response, right? That's one possibility, dormancy. And you know, this is a successful strategy because even the most successful hunter-gatherers don't always come back with food. They might get injured, they might get sick, it could be bad weather. They have to have the ability for their microbiome to take a nap. Okay, cool, not a problem. But if they stay dormant a long time, this is an, the, there's another issue because you can end up with compounds like polyphosphates and bradykinin, which increase gut and blood-brain barrier per, mitochondrial permeability and everything starts to leak, but that's not, that's, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. Um, the, the important thing is if it's hibernating, we just need to clean up the environment and feed it. Um, now, not all bacterial species are really good at hibernating or forming spores is another kind of version of that. Um, and so the second adaptation is called phenotype drift. And that means they change their form to survive their new environment. So millions of years ago, the, the symbiotic bacteria in the microbiome were originally parasitic in nature. And then they became symbiotic. They, they changed because it was to their advantage. But they still have, way back in their genetic code, the knowledge of how to be parasitic again. And if you if we create a bad enough environment for them that that being symbiotic is not worth it to them, then some of these will undergo what's called phenotype drift and become parasitic. Is that like candida overgrowth and things like that? Or uh, well, can it would be something going from it's when the bacteria starts actually shifting its form so that it's eating different things and and going to the bathroom in different ways. Like normally good bacteria will eat the food that we don't need and give us a short chain fatty acids and metabolites we do. Right. It could shift to eating our intestines and defecating in toxins as a result. Got it. Got it. Right. Okay. Which is not what we'd want. No. So it basically turns into food poisoning. It turns into an infection rather than a symbiont because it has the knowledge of how to do that. So like E. coli is an example, right? There's a good E. coli in all of us, but you can also get E. coli from from uh, meat that was fed grains and then the butcher, because grains aren't natural for a cow, it just fattens them quicker. And then the butcher might not have done a good job and might have nicked the gut of the cow and then E. coli got in the meat. And now you've got a form of E. coli, which has been altered pheno phenotypically because of the weird diet that we feed animals to fatten them. And then we get that and now we got a problem. That's an example of how that could happen. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, what happens if you get a bad microbiome? So we know all the things that it should do for you and regulating all of these things moment by moment. And so we lose that. So it's a loss of homeostasis, but, and, you know, again, it's not digestion. It's not the main thing that you notice with a microbiome going out of whack. Certainly you'll get it. But um, people who say, oh, my microbiome is fine. I, I have no gas and I'm not constipated. I'm like, and, you know, uh, I can eat anything I want. I'm like, that's not necessarily accurate. So what happens when the microbiome goes off? So you, we lose homeostatic balance, uh, increase in toxicity, inflammation. The immune system starts getting going weird. Things start to putrefy. We get SIBO, which is small intestine um, bacterial or really should be microbial microbial overgrowth. And that's when you get bloated after a meal. So let's look at these one at a time, right? Remember the microbiome is responsible for regulating neurotransmitters, hormones, enzymes, blood sugar, immunity. And so 
if these things start to go out of whack, you can imagine how many different things start to go awry with a person, right? This is where someone goes and they go to the doctor with a hundred symptoms and the doctor does a test on everything but their gut. And the doctor's like, you're fine. You know, these are all low level symptoms that are in your head. I'm like, no, it's not in your head. It's in your gut. Okay. Um, toxicity. You know, we're taught that the liver and the kidneys are the main routes for detoxification, that the, the, the liver will create the chemicals that will help make fat soluble toxins, water soluble. And then these things either pass out the bile or out the kidneys, but the microbiome actually does a lot of detox for us and a healthy microbiome will detoxify things we eat plus things that are in the blood by the metabolites it makes before the liver even sees it. So, you know, like in, in many ways, the liver is a backup detoxification organ with the microbiome being the primary. Okay, so uh, inflammation, a healthy uh, microbiome breaks down inflammatory molecules. Um, an imbalanced microbiome generates a lot of lipopolysaccharides, which is the skin, as it were, or the membrane of gram-negative bacterial cell walls. And so when, the back, when there's a lot of these uh, nasty bacteria, then what we end up with is a lot of their cell walls there, and that's highly inflammatory, especially when they translocate into joints and then you know, people have proteobacteria in their joints and then the, the lipopolysaccharide in the joint and then the, the autoimmune in the joint and they get arthritis. Well, you know, where did that inflammation come from? What's in there? Uh, a lot of people think that the microbiome is just the gut. Well, okay, that's the biggest one, right? Every square inch of our body inside and out has a microbiome. There's a microbiome in the brain, in the lungs, in the liver. It's, it's everywhere, right? There's no real estate that hasn't got some microbiome associated with it at some degree. And but the primary is the gut and it's sort of like running the show. So you really want it healthy so it can regulate, oversee, govern the whole microbiome of the whole body. So how about immune dysfunction? Um, so there's a lot of ways in which the microbiome manages our immunity. Now let's uh, take parasites, for example. They're an old adversary. Now the mammalian immune system is 200 million years old. But parasites have been around for over 500 million years. So they've got a 300 million year head start on us in terms of figuring out how to mess with us. And in that time, immense time frame, they've learned a lot of strategies to evade, suppress, attack, and distract our immune system. Uh, one trick parasites have is they can vary their surface proteins so that um, our immune system doesn't recognize them. Now consider T. brucei, which is the parasite that causes sleeping sickness. There's over 2,000 genes that code for proteins on its surface. So parasites can be the masters of disguise, right? As soon as the immune system learns to recognize them, they change to a form that makes them invisible again. And invisibility is a game changer, whether it's in you know special operations in military theaters or or it's happening in the body. If you can if you can be invisible, if you can be camouflaged, if they can't see you coming, it's huge. And, you know, that's why we go through such great efforts to give our, our soldiers night vision so that we can take away the invisibility of, the of our enemies, but can maintain it for ourselves. So how do you give night vision, as it were? How do you decloak, as it were, infections? One other thing is, so para certain parasites also create a liposol uh, coat on them that's almost identical to human tissue, right? So the immune system has to navigate this, has to thread this needle. If it's overly aggressive, uh, you end up with autoimmune. If it's under aggressive, you end up with chronic disease. So it's got to be able to just right down the middle, figure out exactly which are the things that aren't human and are trying to hide and get them. All right. So how do we, how do we do it? The immune system can't figure that out. That's not a job the immune system could do. The microbiome figures that out for us, right? So 
Um, you know, the like I said, the parasites are 500 million years old, but you know, the microbiome is is a billion plus. So for you know, it has it's it, any chick the the parasites know the microbiome has already seen that. So its job is to decloak the infections, to tag the infections as it were, to decloak them so that then the immune system goes and go in and say, oh wow, hang on a minute. And you know, you you can see this in certain cases where things like cancer are suddenly gone in a week, these spontaneous remissions and Coley's toxins, right? Coley was giving people bacterial infections. Uh, he noticed that there was a certain kind of um, incurable cancer that one person survived. They survived because they got a certain bacterial infection and their immune system basically wiped out the cancer, right? So why couldn't the immune system go after the cancer before? It couldn't see it. But that particular infection was close enough to the cancer that the immune system in the process of going after the infection got rid of the cancer too. Right. So the immune system can do a lot of things for you, but it needs the microbiome to help give it the military intelligence to know where to go, what to do, how to, you know, it, it's, it's the general, it's what's giving the marching orders. The immune system is completely willing to lay down its life for you to keep you healthy, but it needs guidance from the microbiome or it's fine. It, there's just an enemy. It just can't see. You are a master of creating such accessible pictures of how things work. It's really incredible. All right, you can keep going. I, I'm I'm just Thanks, enthralled. Okay, so let's talk about putrefaction and dysbiosis. So the only things that are meant to enter the large intestine are oligosaccharides and fiber, meaning anything that you can digest, the fats, the amino acids, the sugars, should be digested and absorbed at the small intestine with only the stuff you cannot digest fibers and oligosaccharides getting to the large intestine. However, if someone doesn't have, if someone eats more food than they can digest, meaning they might have a normal digestion, but just completely, you know, just eat way too much, or they eat a normal amount, but part of their digestive system isn't working properly, then undigested food gets into the large intestine. Now, if protein gets into the large intestine, clostridia, which is a common bacteria, will turn the proteins into toxic diamines like putrescine and cadaverine. And putrescine, putrid, and cadaverine, cadaver, gives you a sense of how bad these things actually smell if you ever come across these chemicals in a lab. They're what are found in putrefying corpses. And they also make ammonia and toxic short-chain fatty acids. So uh, if protein, you don't want protein getting in the large intestine, okay? Um, if fat gets in the large intestine, then clostridia will turn into ruterin, which is a broad-spectrum antibiotic like Cipro. Acrolin, which is a highly reactive genotoxin, meaning it just damages genes, and trimethylamine, which causes arterial plaque. So you don't want undigested fat in the large intestine. And if carbohydrates or sugars get in the large intestine, it creates an overgrowth in candida that gives you excess gas. So proteins, fats, and carbohydrates to get digested in the small intestine should not get to the large intestine. Because if you if they stay in there, if they are in the large intestine long enough, well, then these the microbiome can learn to start eating those better. And then what else might they eat that's made out of protein? Well, the internal organs and muscles are made out of protein. Uh, what If they could learn how to eat fat, well, the brain and the nerves are made out and cell membranes are made of fat. And if they learn how to eat sugars, well, the cartilage in your joint is made out of sugar. So we, the other issue about spilling over into the large intestine and the phenotype drift it can create is it teaches bacteria to eat us, which is not what we want. No. Um, okay, so why I get other reasons why we might get spillover of these things in the large intestine is we don't chew well enough. 
um, or, uh, or you have a weak ilocecal valve. One of the things you'll, you'll notice that this is going on is you'll, is a bloating, which is like a SIBO, right? Bacteria building up in the small intestine. That means that you're starting to, you're, you've got more sugars, bacteria, and, uh, sorry, sugars, proteins, and fats in the small intestine than it can absorb. And it's the process is already starting to happen in the small intestine because the lower portion of the, the small intestine has a microbiome very similar to the colon itself, right? Real quick, um, if you want to, if you're saying, hey, wow, SIBO, I think I've got that. I get a lot of bloating after meals. One thing is pancreatic enzymes, obviously. The other thing you can do is you can start taking certain prebiotics. Those would be uh, the kind of prebiotics, sorry, probiotics. The bacteria that are found in the the upper portion of the small intestine would be the strep class. So streptococcus salivarius and streptococcus thermophilus. And then you can also do the lactobacilli. And uh, then there's some others that uh, if you have an issue, just reach out to me at my website. I'll give you some of these others that aren't available in the US, in the US marketplace that can help. Because the idea with SIBO is, you know, you want to be overwhelming the small intestine with the bacteria that should be there so that the bad bacteria just don't, uh, they're, they're just out, um, out-competed. Okay. Uh, so how do you know if you have a, if your microbiome's out of whack? Well, okay. Um, you could go do a $500 test. Even then, if you get the wrong test, it won't have ba- really basic information like pH on it. So there's, uh, you got to get the right test. Here's a way your, your listeners can do it at home, right? Uh, so ask yourself uh, five questions. First, does the does your stool smell bad? Now, obviously, feces shouldn't smell good, but it shouldn't smell terrible. You know, it should, you know, I mean, and if you've ever had a kid, you know that their their poop doesn't, when they're very young, doesn't smell bad. It smells like, it smells like butter, all right? So um, it should have like kind of like an acidic, smell to it, but not something that you're like running to turn the fan on and open the windows because that's um, the clostridium making a mess in there in the gut. Um, Do you need a lot of toilet paper? A healthy microbiome means you wipe one time. There's no stain in the toilet paper. You actually didn't even need the toilet paper to begin with. No healthy animal soils itself, right? If you were to go and buy a horse, you you would look in two things. You look in the mouth to see how far the gums have receded to know how old the horse is. And then you put your hand on the horse's back and you walk around so it doesn't kick you and it knows where you are. You lift up its tail and you see if it's soiled its backside because if it's soiled its backside, its gut is out. And no healthy animal soils itself, humans included. We should not need toilet paper. Uh, and actually, if you get your gut right, you won't. Okay. Transit time. How long does it take to go from food being eaten to going to the toilet? And a lot of people will say, oh, I'm fine. I go to the bathroom every day. I'm like, yeah, but what just came out of you? Was it from yesterday or from last week? What you, the way to find out is you take a tablespoon of liquid chlorophyll and you wait, count how many hours it takes for your stool to turn green. It should be 18 to 24. 48 that's pushing it, right? We pass 48 and, you know, you got to start looking at how much exercise do you get? How much time are you spend spending sitting down? You know, what's your diet? Is there any fiber in your food? You know, and finally, you can use some pH paper. Uh, you just want to make sure you get the pH paper that goes from a range from six to eight, not the one with a broader range. that will be harder to tell. And a healthy stool should be 6.6. Now, a pH of 6.6 doesn't guarantee healthy microbiome, but a, health, a pH above seven or below 6.2 definitely means the microbiome is out of whack. And obviously gas, if you've got any kind of gas, not a little bit of gas, yes, the body is going to make some hydrogen and some carbon dioxide, and you will swallow some when you're eating, right? But if, if, you're, if you've got a problem with flatulence, that's the microbiome. So 
what are we going to do? Marianne? How do we, how are we going to fix the microbiome for people? Oh my gosh. Um, I have some ideas, but why don't you, why don't you tell us? All right. So, you know, the first people think people think, is, Oh, I'll, I will go buy some probiotics. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the probiotics that are you're going to find in stores, this is changing now if you know where to look, but by and large, these are the bifidus and the acidophilus. And the reason why these are what are available is because, um, one, they've been tested for a long time, but two, they're really easy to grow in a lab. But that represents less than 1% of what the adult microbiome is. It's That's infant microbiome. We need adult microbiome. And the other 99% of the bacteria that we need as an adult, most of that is not available for sale because it's very hard to grow it. You need to grow it in something that's basically an industrial simulated intestine. And people are doing that. So we're coming out of the dark ages for that, but not yet. Um, but again, reach out to me. I can send you a list or I can we make it available for you at the um, in the notes of this, a list of the probiotics that I like to use. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. The other thing I think of is diet, obviously. Yeah. So talk to us about the oligosaccharides. Sure. But first, let's talk about um, one more, uh, the sources of where you could get the good bacteria, because the diet is great, but you have to have the bacteria there to feed it in the first place. I figured that was coming Uh, later, but we can, we can do that now. Okay. So, so there are two reserves for the good bacteria. The first is the dormant cells. Remember the microbiome, even if it got wiped, slammed with antibiotics, all it needs is one cell of a species to have been dormant and survived to, to replicate if you can feed it the prebiotics, which is diet. So one is dormant cells, okay? You feed the oligosaccharides, God willing, they grow back again. Um, the second is in the appendix. And you might have, you know, a lot of people think the appendix is the vestigial organ with no purpose other than to cause appendicitis. That's not accurate. It's the backup uh, reboot for your microbiome. In case a person gets food poisoning and the microbiome gets damaged, the, the appendix can then open up and repopulate the bacteria. Uh, again, you need the oligosaccharides to feed that. Okay. The third reserve is other people, and this is known as a fecal transplant. That's a topic for another podcast, but that's for people who, you know, C. difficile or, you know, they just, you know, they just had a hard time from, from the beginning, you know, premature birth, not breastfed, um, formula, probe, uh, an, uh, antibiotics, these people, they just never had a good microbiome, even to, even from day one. And okay, so then you need to, you could consider finding someone in your family that uh, has got, you know, you, you screening that doesn't have sexually transmitted diseases or anything infectious or parasites third world travel, preferably the same sex as you if they're past puberty, can be either sex or if they're before puberty. Uh, and you can go online and look up how to do a fecal transplant. Um, okay. So, uh, if you consider that a single bacteria with a doubling time of 20 minutes can generate 34 billion copies of itself in 12 hours, you realize that it won't take long to grow out your microbiome if you feed it. And this is what I've seen. It's like, you can take people and give them the right food for the microbiome. And in a few days, you know, things that, that they couldn't, that they thought they'd have, uh, they, they could not fix for years. It's just gone or radically improved because they had bacteria that just only had a, a few dormant levels of them. Okay. Um, now the other thing is you've got to, if you have that dormant bacteria, you, you can't just take the prebiotics and say, oh, I took it for a week and nothing happened. You know, you, you have to wait for that dormant bacteria to decide to do its cyclic sampling of the gut because it, it might just be fast asleep. 
And then, you know, I'll be on a cycle and be like once a month, be like, all right, maybe it's better now. No, once, no, no. Hey, hey, what is this? All this? Hey, guys, wake up, you know? So, you know, you can't assume, even though it often will happen, you can't assume that the, that, you know, immediately your microbiome is going to snap back because it might, some of the bacteria, how do I phrase this? I'll, you will, you should start seeing improvements very quickly. However, you might not see the complete um, benefit for a while because you have to wait for all the dormant bacteria to cycle into a temporary on state um, for them to see that life is good now and to come back online and start eating. Yeah, I want to okay. interject a little bit on that because as a health coach, I run into people getting really frustrated. They expect to take a supplement for seven days and it gets rid of years worth of damage in the body. And while nourishing the body properly can radically improve your health, people are, we're like in a microwave generation where people want it like yesterday. And this is where like, you will feel better, but it might take a while for your body to actually go, okay, like this is what we're doing now and really start to recover and regenerate. So I just want to let everybody know, like, it's really easy to get impatient in our culture, but it's really, it really can take time for things to really improve. And then we also forget what it feels like to feel bad. So we actually don't even recognize when we're feeling better. So there's just a little health mm. coach interjection in there. Interesting. Yeah. So then you asked, you know, like, all right, so diet. I'm like, yes, diet with a caveat. So can you get enough of, so can you get enough prebiotics in a good diet? Maybe kind of, uh, you'd have to eat a lot of foods. You'd have to eat a lot of foods that you might not like. If you wanted to recreate a primitive diet with a primitive ratio and quantity of prebiotics, you'd be eating things like tubers, like Jerusalem artichoke, which cause a lot of gas, uh, insects, mushrooms, seaweed, a lot of raw, raw tissue, um, you know, connective tissue. And then it would take excellent digestion to even get these oligosaccharides out of these foods. And I realized that, you know, I wasn't realistically going to do this with diet. I mean, I eat a very primitive diet. I take organic ground beef and chicken. I put it in a special freezer at minus 35 Celsius, which freezes it to the point where it'll kill all the parasites. And then I eat my meat raw, uh, like, like sushi or tartare, right? Uh, it's because the meat, when it's raw, not only has it got, you don't lose half the, the, the vitamins from cooking, but you've got all the... Uh, the cofactors and the stem cell peptides and all the things that people spend thousands, thousands of dollars injecting into their body are there in the meat if you eat it raw, but you've got to one, make sure you're not getting parasites and two, overcome the psychological challenge of that. And three, you know, it doesn't taste as good as cooked meat because you're not releasing glutamate and you're not getting that savory flavor. Well, but in any case, one uh, thing I do want to say is here in America, we don't eat our meat raw, but most other cultures around the world actually do. So I feel like that's kind of one thing that um, I get a lot of international listeners and I do know in international cuisine, raw meat is one of the things that they they find extremely valuable and they have different fermenting processes to do the same thing and all of that. So it's very interesting because here in America, we are so far removed from food, I think, I believe. Um, just what I know about other cultures, even in Europe, like they're like, yeah, you have to have raw meat. You have to have the organs. You do pate. You do all these things that we in America are like, ew, gross. Why would you do that? That's so, ugh. but it's how you get healthy. And in America, we're just so removed from that. It's just really, it's really interesting. So it's not as out there as people think, but it is for us culturally here in America. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little challenging the first time I did it, but um, I wouldn't go back to eating cooked meat. Now the, 
what it does to your for your mitochondria and the cardiolipin and the the degree of energy you get from it is just remarkable in terms of just the strength it'll give you. In terms of fermenting, you know, we could probably do a podcast where I could show people how to ferment meat, how to ferment oats, how to ferment carrot juice for people that might be dairy intolerant, and all the different kinds of ways you can ferment things and all the, for different effects. Like, you know, what would you, what would you ferment up? What substrates can you ferment? Like, okay, like noni and pomegranate can from our way. There are certain things you can ferment in them, and there are certain things like you can uh, you can ferment in carrot juice. And then if you know what kind of conditions you've got, then you could say, okay, I know that I had a history of kidney stones, so I will go ferment oxalobacter uh, fermentinase in carrot juice and then drink that. And then so there's 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 ways to do this. Um, we could talk at some point. Okay. So to continue, well, you know, I realized that I was not going to get these prebiotics in a, in a primitive diet, even though I do eat quasi-primitively, I, I'm not going to do that. Um, so what I did is I identified key, uh, eight key oligosaccharides, these sugars we can't digest that we need for a healthy microbiome. And I put them in what I thought would be the ratio from what I could gather from primitive hunter-gatherer diets and said, okay, so it's going to be this proportion of this and this and this and this. And I made it uh, as a product called Panaceum and it's a capsule and you can you can take it. And to let, I'll let you know what's in it now so you can recreate it if you like for yourself. Um, it's got galacto-oligosaccharides, which you find in tubers, which was the main staple of primitive diets, xylo-oligosaccharides, pectin-oligosaccharides, and fructo-oligosaccharides, which are found in certain fruits and vegetables, connective tissue-oligosaccharides, which are found in cartilage, insects, and mushrooms. No, there's no insects in the product. And fucoidin-oligosaccharides that are found in seaweed, and isomalto-oligosaccharides found in honey, miso, and kimchi. So that's... Uh, how we made it. And you say, well, why so many oligosaccharides? So um, I'll tell you a story. Um, well, for, first, uh, oligosaccharides also act as decoy molecules that prevent pathogenic bacteria and fungi from attacking your gut wall. So the wider a range of oligosaccharides you have in your diet, the more protection your gut has against a wider range of bacteria, uh, which is why I like to take a panacea with each meal. Secondly, different bacteria have different food sources. So the greater the diversity of oligosaccharides, the greater the diversity of species in your microbiome. And you never know what which one is going to have what you need. And third, these oligosaccharides are not interchangeable. I had a friend in her 20s. She was two years into a serious and worsening health crisis. She had catastrophic depression and chronic fatigue. And, uh, you know, the, you know, her symptoms did not come across as what I thought was microbiome, which at the time I thought was gut. It was neurologic. Um, it was hormonal. It was energy. It was inflammatory. And took her to heart specialists. Nothing and then finally, you know, I said, all right, I, I don't know if this is going to help you much, but even if we get you 10% better, because there's a little bit of, you know, your gut does show that it's having some stress. And I gave her those eight things. And, you know, three days later, she's, ha she's happy and energetic. It was, it was, it was miraculous for her. And then uh, maybe a week or so later, I ran out of two of the eight. And three days after that, she collapsed again. Got those two back in. And then two hours later, she got out of bed, made lunch for herself, and then after over the next four days, she was back to health. So the takeaway was um, oligosaccharides are not interchangeable. If you go and buy prebiotics from the store, you know, it's going to be the, a few cheap ones that you can get, like the fructo and the galacto-oligosaccharides, right? Um, you never know which ones your gut needs, and you need them all. Um, and the second is, you know, if you give your gut the right things it needs, sometimes uh, the, the, the improvement can be, you know, very fast. I mean, days. Now, um, 
you know, what happened for me, I, you know, my gut wasn't, I didn't really have a problem in my microbiome, but what I personally noticed, um, is my eyesight got better. Um, my physical strength got better, you know, suddenly I'm, I'm when I'm at the gym, I, I needed to add a few more plates to the, to the, to the rack. Um, my endurance improved. Um, uh, my sense of balance got better, which was always terrible, which means, and that's brain, right? And nerve. And my skin got much more resistant to scrapes and cuts. Um, I was, I live off grid and I caught my foot on a piece of wood and I'm like, oh God, I just hope I don't need stitches for this. I hobble back. I look at it. The, the skin is not even cut. It's just red, which up until then it had been getting pretty damaged on every, I, I'd been getting cuts that I thought were little cuts and my skin would rip right open. I'm like, gosh, this is what happens to old people. Um, and so I looked at all these things. I'm like, okay, eyesight, strength, endurance, balance, skin. Oh gosh, I know how all these are related. These are all things that get worse with age. I was getting younger. So yeah, I was feeding the microbiome and in return, it was doing the favor of taking, taking a decade off my uh, biological age. The conclusion to this would be, you know, the microbiome is an ancient intelligence and it's got a lineage going back a billion years. It's a very powerful ally. It's been with you, guiding you protecting you and partnering with you since before you were born. You know, some people are concerned, oh, I, I'm MTHFR, I've got all these genetic things, all these issues. I'm like, your microbiome, even if you don't have the ability to methylate, your microbiome probably does. You know, your microbiome can, has a, remember, a thousand times more genetic information than you have in your own genes. So if you can't, in your own genes, do something, and that's it's not the end of the world if your microbiome can take up the slack for you it's the ultimate human upgrade and all it's asking is from oligosaccharides to eat the leftovers or in this case something we have to give it to it intentionally and in return it gives us gifts that we couldn't even imagine i i know how powerful our gut can be but i feel like you took it to like this whole other level. Like, I'm like, oh yeah, I know. It's like so powerful. We need it. We need to nourish it. But it's like, I just, I love really digging deep into this. So I really appreciate your knowledge and just being willing to share it. Like I'm, I'm just enthralled every time you talk and your just ability to, to really make it understandable is great. So thank you so much for that. I do want to ask like for someone who is like, oh my gosh, I just don't know where to start. Like obviously your website and, you know, I'm going to probably in link the things that you've recommended individually so people can click on them easier in the show notes. But like, if let's just somebody just wants to know where, like, where do I start right now? Like I'm done with this podcast. What can I do for my microbiome starting today before I order anything? What can someone do? Eat beans, you know, um, the illegal, uh, eat beans and tubers, right? So like, I mean, I'm not a fan of sweet potatoes because they have a lot of oxalates in them. Um, but, you know, that that's the quickest way to start getting some oligosaccharides in your diet would be, um, you know, I do um, dookie beans and I soak them overnight and rinse them. And I find that soaked, rinsed, slow cooked dookie beans don't give me any um, digestive upset and then tubers. So that's the and then and then walk every day, <laughs> walk around Um you know, and you know, the other thing you can do right now is you can do that, the, those five kind of tests I mentioned just to see where you're at. So give yourself a baseline. Perfect. Uh, Thank you so. so much. Oh, and all right, here's one more thing you can do. Um, so attitude plays a role in the microbiome. Good bacteria are fed by oxytocin and bad bacteria are, will actually 
be fed by uh, adrenaline and noradrenaline. So fear and anger actually will increase the growth. And, you know, I, I think it's helping deliver iron is how it ends up doing it to bacteria. When you're in a good mood, you are cultivating and culturing good bacteria, which will then create the neurochemistry for you to be in a good mood. So if, you know, or vice versa in a downward spiral. So, um, you know, one thing you can do for your microbiome is, um, just be in a good space and, you know, um, be happy and compassionate and, uh, then you'll cultivate happy and compassionate bugs in your gut. I love that. I, I love making it tangible. Like there's always just so much we can do and there's so much we don't know. And we're just constantly learning, Attitude does play a role in stress management and sleep and movement. I, I find that movement is just becoming more and more central. Like I've always known that movement's important, but it's as easy as walking. Everybody thinks they have to go hard and they have to go to the gym and they have to do this. And really you can just walk every day mm. and it's just so powerful, yeah. you know, and getting outside, I think, and, you know, and eating really real food, especially if you can get it from a farmer's market or your own garden, where there's that symbiotic relationship with mm -hmm. the soil, the bacteria in the soil and things like that mm -hmm. too. Thank you again so much for coming and just, uh, I mean, I'm just spellbound every time you talk, like it's just such great information. So thank you again for coming on and, you know, hopefully you'll be back soon and we can just take people even deeper. Thanks for having me on Mary. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. If you found this episode helpful, would you do me a favor and help others find it by leaving a review, sharing a screenshot on social media, or sharing the link with a friend? By you sharing what you've learned, others are able to find this podcast and join our community. Be sure to check out my website, www.roadtolivingwhole.com for over 160 delicious recipes, a variety of meal plans, and a blog packed full of even more healthy living tips. If you'd like to learn more about how to work with me as your coach, you can schedule a free consult through www.roadtolivingwhole.com backslash health-coaching backslash. Until next time, friend. Bye.